Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's podcast. And once again, as part of our series on inspiring leadership, I'm very uh, excited to have Graham Brown, the world-renowned podcaster, uh, who is is a role model to me of so many things, particularly the way he shows up um, and just a, a sense of calm and rather zen-like, even though you know underneath the underneath the surface that the legs may be paddling hard. But um, we have such great banter between the two of us. And the whole idea is that we spend some time on a particular topic around the Inspiring Leadership Compass. Uh, that compass is the work of my wife, Lee, and I on what makes high-performing leaders and teams and organizations. And now this week, we're on CQ, which is cultural, cognitive, and collective intelligence, and things like diversity, equality, and inclusion. So, Graham. Great to have you on the show again. Uh, what's been going on for you uh, this week? And what is for you this theme of CQ, cultural, collective and cognitive intelligence mean for you? Thank you, Jonathan. Wonderful to be back. I think this episode six is a continuation of the last one, isn't it? Really, mm. the last one, I, one of the key takeaways was that there isn't just one way of doing things. There's not one way of living as well. So I'm looking forward to that, you know, bringing in different diverse ideas about how to do things, how to solve problems. And, you know, this is core to leadership. If you look at what culture actually means, you know, way back to the, you know, I like my etymologies. Mm -hmm. The word itself is to grow, you know, like to cultivate, to cultivate the soil, the, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the field, if you like. And that's core to leadership. How do you create a culture to grow your people? So hopefully there are many different ways of doing that. And there's not just one way yeah. of growing a crop, right? Yeah. And I think that's very interesting, that whole theme about growth. Um, uh, as we, you and I were talking about, Liz Trust made the thing about growth, uh, her, her cornerstone of her disastrous 44 days in power um, without actually involving. She didn't make it collective. She and Quasi just went on and did their own thing, didn't decide to take any advice from any of the, the people who might just have cautioned a little bit of, uh, have you thought of this or that, or even speak to the Bank of England. Um, and, and there is this comment about uh, growth. It, it's, it's good. I think I, I'm, I'm more into development um, because there's that comment that growth in a closed system, you've either got to be mad or an economist to expect mm. exponential growth, exponential growth. Because the only thing in a closed system where you get exponential growth with an analogy is the human body with cancer, where yeah. it, it and, and as you know, that sadly killed my brother, David, uh, in just 10 weeks from when he was diagnosed to when he died. But it'd been insidiously working in the background inside his body when he didn't know it and we didn't know it. So so I think we've got to be careful about this. Everybody goes for growth. And, and well, I want to grow my business. I want to grow my business. Or, or Boris said he wanted to become prime minister. Yeah, but to do what? I didn't care. I just wanted to become prime minister. And, and so 
you, you want to have this idea of growth and development. And particularly, I love that one about culture. Uh, really, really makes me think. Should we go to a couple of the questions? Audience Let's questions do it. From yeah. last week. Uh, Chief Risk Officer in America mm. asked, what is your experience of the best way to really embrace cultural diversity and inclusion in an organization? Now, Graham, you've traveled the world and yeah. you, you've been in so many different cultures and, and diversity and inclusion is a big part of your life. So, mm -hmm. so how would you answer that CFO? How do we stop our, sorry, uh, what is your experience of the best way to really embrace cultural diversity and inclusion in an organization? In an yeah, organization? It, really interesting, Chief Risk Officer. Uh, you know, there, we have to understand what the dividend is for culture and, you know, cultural diversity and inclusion. We have to understand why we need it. I mean, there is a sort of very soft uh, answer to that, which is, you know, it's good for the people, but like for it to work, it has to connect to the bottom line. It's not that everything has to drive a profit, but the point is, is unless it drives a profit, all the activity is going to graduate back to what it used to be. Right. So understand what is the benefit of diversity and inclusion. And there's a great book called wisdom of the crowds written some years ago by James Surowiecki. And he talks about the jelly bean, the jelly bean experiment, which is basically the, the country fair. They asked people to, you know, say how many jelly beans were in the jar. And, you know, I think the winner won, maybe they won the jar of the jelly beans, right? Who knows? But they found that the more diverse, the groups of people answering the question, the better they were estimating it. So where you asked a group of people who are sort of all white males, they actually had a very skewed answer, but the more diverse, you know, in backgrounds, the more accurate their answers were, which is strange because, you know, why is that the case? Why do these diverse teams give better answers? Well, the reason is, is because the homogenous teams tend to gravitate towards a certain view on things, like one way of doing things, as you can imagine, like all boys from, you know, maybe a public school in a company may behave a certain way. So I think, you know, the key here to your friend to ask the question is to understand what is the benefit of this. And if you understand what the benefit of this is, then we can build around that, right? Because often what happens is people put these diversity and inclusion plans in place, but then the company DNA resists that. And that's when it fails. Yeah, that's really good. And, and I think the other thing to add to what you've said in my experience is if the, the CEO, and the C-suite who are running that organization, if they really live it, because people are watching how things are done around here. That's the culture, the way things are done around mm -hmm. here. And, and they go, okay, well, we say one thing, but the CEO and the, the leadership team are doing something different. And that's the way to do it. I remember meeting that psychopath who was a Russian mixed Ukrainian guy working for one of the bulge bracket investment banks. And and he'd watched the culture among his leadership team and he described them. I think I told you about this. And, and I said, they sound like white collar psychopaths. He said, oh, can you describe what white collar psychopaths do? And I said, and here's a list of them. He goes, yeah, tick, 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 went down there. That, that's exactly it. That, that's the culture. That's how it is. Can you teach me? And I said, yeah, I'll teach you how to survive in that kind of environment, how to get away from it, probably move to another job. No, no, he said. I want to be like them. I, I, I aspire <laughs> to be like them. They're, they're rich and um, this is the way they do it. And so, so, so you've really got to watch the culture of that leadership team. And 
And I think of Remitley, who who uh, Lee and I know and love dearly and work closely with it. Uh, and Matt, the, the CEO, really aims to live it and hire mm. people who are diverse and inclusive mm. and call out people and move on people who are not living the cultural values that they have. And, and they have 15 values. Uh, the challenge could always be, could they have three or five? So people can remember the values. But the point is having values on the wall. Remember one of the big banks that was having a crisis at the time of the 2008 crash. They had all these values in the lift on the wall and things, but they weren't living them. Hmm. Um, so I think that's, that's interesting. Any, anything more before we go into the next question? Yeah. You know, a good leader needs to understand the difference between what feels effective um, and what actually is effective. So it, it's quite easy to surround yourself by people where you feel like you're working as a team and you may feel dissenters mm -hmm. have no place, you know, people asking awkward questions. And that's the difference between actually what is effective and feeling effective. Because I think, you know, if you look at the history of brands that have failed over time, you know, people like the Kodaks, for example, there was that great feeling of effectiveness and the reason is is because you know all the board were a mirror of the ceo and therefore they could all kind of agree and get on and then move fast on things mm -hmm. but the reality was is they're moving fast on all the wrong things so i think this comes back to actually the your point jonathan about living it really means encouraging people who are different from you and different voices and creating a space for those right mm -hmm. and it's okay that we disagree on this right and encouraging that safe space for people to do that. Yeah, and that's so so true about this different perspectives and, and hearing people and having conversations about it. Uh, today, you and I were talking about the fact I've been reading this book, uh, Reclaiming Conversations by Sherry Turkle, who's written some very mm. interesting stuff. But but she's saying that, that these days now with our phones and our technology, people come into a meeting, their laptop comes up or their phone's there, and, and it disintegrates the understanding of the other mm. um, because you're not really in their world. You're in your world and you're inuring yourself. You're insulating yourself from any feelings and emotion of difference. And so how can you understand and embrace and include people if you're quite remote and you mm. don't want to don't want to have a physical conversation with someone and you're not really present with them? So You're not I, vulnerable, are you? Yeah, yeah, as well. yeah, yeah. That's, that's the shield, true. isn't it? Yeah, you've got to be prepared to be wrong. What if I'm wrong? And that's always a great question to ask a team or whatever. What if I'm wrong? Which takes me on nicely to the mm. second question from the audience uh, from last month was a CFO from Bristol asked, uh, how do we stop our meetings being so poorly run? And I love this line he uh, put in here, where we take minutes yet waste hours we take uh, minutes yet waste hours ain't that the truth <laughs> so what's we your thought how do we stop our meetings being so poorly run what's your experience and how do we make yeah, them that, sort of that collective collaborative approach a few hacks that i've learned and picked up along the way and you know love to hear yours as well jonathan and then maybe there's sort of a top level approach to this as well about meetings um one is stand up so do all your meetings standing up that certainly makes meetings go a lot faster um, and, it, you know, a little bit of the energy as well is higher when you're standing up. I think people, you know, when they're sitting down can easily get defensive, you know, they get into defensive sort of body language as well. That works quite well. I think it's sort of Jeff 
Bezos had his pizza rule as well about meetings, which I can't remember exactly. It was something like, you know, if you can't feed a team with one pizza, it's too big. Mm-hmm. It just kind of makes sense, isn't it? There's probably a lot of people. I work a lot with corporates. And I can say for a fact, there's always a lot more people that need to be, that shouldn't be in that meeting, right? Than need to be. So I think that's probably keeping the numbers really small. There's probably an optimum number. I'm sure a lot of psychology studies are done on this, probably like three, four people in a meeting and everybody else can piss off, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. What about yourself, Jonathan? Have you noticed uh, any sort of hacks that you could yeah, use? Yeah, to- yeah. I mean, uh, one of the things that Lee and I do a lot of is help uh, organizations run better meetings. It's a particular skill set that I've learned over, goodness, I suppose, 20 years in the army and 25 years in business. And uh, based really on being running myself uh, or being part of appalling meetings, like just, I will never get that three hours of my life back again. It was a complete (laughs) waste of time. And um, yeah, I've got some really good hacks that we put in our little uh, top tips for inspiring women leaders that we uh, we did a little pocketbook oh, which you can you can get on Amazon. But uh, yeah, the, the hacks are in the back of there. And um, uh, purpose, first one, no 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 purpose, no meeting. If you can't find that the other person can't in a sentence explain the purpose of the meeting, don't go. Mm. And certainly don't send a deputy because you're putting them through the agonies of what you're avoiding because you know it's an awful meeting and a complete waste of their life and time. So the first one is purpose, the why, uh, back to our discussion on Simon Sinek. The, the next one is the who, as you say, you know, the, 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 the pizza test of Jess Bezos, how, how many people do you really want there? Can everybody who's there add value? And if you yeah. look at all their salaries and the percentage of the time of their salary for that month that they're spending in this meeting, you get an idea of the cost and the opportunity cost of them not doing their day job. Because actually when they're in a meeting, they're not getting on with their day job, which is waiting for them when they get back. Um, The other thing is, uh, where does the leadership in an organization go on? Mm. Well, uh, it, it happens when they're, you know, interacting, communicating with people, giving instructions, making decisions. And so therefore, the the greatest display of leadership is in meetings in your organization so if your meetings are poorly run your organization is poorly led Mm. so it's a direct correlation between good meetings discipline meetings which make decisions and good leadership and and there's a mnemonic that i picked up can't remember where it came from but i I say if there's no dan's ad there's no meeting that you need a meeting to have this mnemonic d-a-n-s-a-double-d dan's ad or oh, Dan's a dad. We had one guy called Dan and he's just become a dad to so Dan's a dad. But but what's the decision? What's the action? What's the next step? Who's accountable? And what's the delivery deadline? Because mm-hmm. I, I asked some organizations, my final point, it's about output, but I asked the organization, you know, you do this, what is it your organization makes? And they were all umming and ahhing and various ideas were thrown out. And I said, that's interesting, but it's not the right answer. The right answer is you make decisions. That's what your organization mm, does. Mm. And, and that ability to make decisions at the lowest possible level and have the hierarchy do decision evaluation. And that came from another podcast guest we had. That's good, yeah. Cap- Captain David Marquet, that, that you mm. want decisions made as low as possible mm. and, and evaluation at the top. What, what comes up from, for you from that, Graham? Oh, absolutely. I love that. It's so true because the old chain of command i'm sure you're very familiar with this one jonathan top down was all about 
decisions made at the top, evaluated at the top, right? But uh, today there's no excuse. We have the data, we have the tools that people can make decisions at the front line. Mm. You know, if you think about it, you know, you as an organization, as a human being, as a, as a living organism, if you put your hand on something hot, like a hot stove, and you get tss, you hear like this thing sizzling, you know, your human, your natural reaction is to pull it away straight away. That decision is not made in the brain. That decision is made by the fingers and the hand, right? That's where the, the actual decision making mm, and the good. muscle memory is contained, yeah. right? Mm, nice. You don't want the brain to start thinking, oh, what's that strange bacony type smell that I can pick up on now? <laughs> so what's going on? That is the traditional top down model. So we have to think like that, that very much decisions at the local decentralized level, because that is how organisms work. And the more mm. we're like that, you know, that's the sort of culturally very healthy organization, right? Mm, mm. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really good one, that, that the more you can get decisions made at the front line, uh, mm. there's, there's always that, that wonderful, wonderful book, um, and The Richer Way by Julian mm. Richer, The Richer Way, R-I-C-H. Oh, from Richer Sounds? Exactly. Yeah, Julian right. Richer. And, uh, and he, uh, Richer Sounds, I, I bought all my, back in when I was in London, all my stereo kit. <laughs> and my hi-fi and my tv from them and, and i experienced exactly what he talked about in his mm. book and i bought it i deliberately went to the shop which had the highest revenue sales per square foot of shop if every, any country i think in the world almost and and, and it was this tiny little shop in near london bridge and 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 it was so small but the guys their attitude you know, mm. knowledge, skills and attitude are the things that people look at when they're hiring. Always half for attitude. Knowledge and skills can be developed. But if their attitude is wonderful mm. and very customer focused, then people will come back. People will buy more. And I had such a good experience. Then, like, you know, it came in, said, this is what I'm looking for. And just they couldn't do enough to think from my point of view what it was like. They came across onto my island from their island to see what it was like. And then I had a bit of a problem and uh, I came back with something because I wasn't about working. And, and, and they went, well, look, if, if Julian Rich was here, he'd just give you a new one. So let me give you a new one. And they didn't check with anybody else. They just gave me a new bit of kit. Yeah. You know, it was worth hundreds of pounds. And they gave it because they said, let's take the other one and, and just off you go. And I was just so happy with that experience. And, and, and they were making the decision on the front line and, and the yeah. bottom line, just it just showed up um I, I that's a that's, great example wonderful yeah. i mean every like I, I don't know that book but as a case study it's a, such a powerful uh, one because it could really, so easily be a poorly run unprofitable hi-fi store i mean it's kind of a sunset industry wasn't it so mm -hmm. but yeah great story uh, no and, and, and great culture and so um mm. think, thinking about cq cultural cognitive collective intelligence quotient mm. uh a couple on this one Greg. what what and we can talk about this what have you seen done to make back to the topic of culture culture and and organizational environment psychologically or physiologically and psychologically safe what have, what have mm. you seen where, where it's safe for people to make mistakes to have a go to learn what what have you seen done where, where the culture is really healthy uh this is really interesting. I'd seen so much on the other side, Jonathan, as I'm sure you have as well. I, I'll give you an example, and I won't name the brand, but let's just say they're a large soda company and um, one of the, the big two. And working with them, 
many years ago, I remember they said to their people, we need to innovate. And therefore, we're going to empower all our people to innovate. We're going to have this, you know, sort of employee generated innovation program where you can win prizes. So they went, you know, obviously a consultant had come in and pushed this idea on them and the management bought in and they went long on this. And then everybody was kind of doing all these 20% projects where they were doing all these crazy things about how they could do this with soda and that with soda and these new products and so on. And not long into the program, they said to everybody, oh, by the way, every single idea has to wash its own face financially within three months. And that just killed everything. Because basically they said to everybody, look, if this idea isn't breaking a profit, we're going to kill it. And then you're going to look stupid because you wasted all this time on it. And so the point is, it's like the real key here about if you want to create innovation, it goes back to the diversity bit as well. But the other part of it is fear mm-hmm. that so many CEOs will happily stand up and say, you know, we need to make mistakes. But like you and I both know, Jonathan, the three laws of parenting are example, example, example. Mm-hmm. Let's see you do it first, right? So I feel like, you know, if you want to create a psychologically safe, physiologically safe space, the CEO has to lead by example. And that means, for example, you know, taking away fear. Like the CEO has to stand up in front of people and say, you know, this is, I want to tell you a story about how I screwed up. Right. And then people mm-hmm. are like, you know, they listen to that and they think, oh, okay, CEO says it's okay to do that. Well, maybe uh, I can do that as well and not worry about it. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference between telling everybody, yeah, go out and make mistakes, but showing first that you did that. And I think that's the difference because so many people do it without the individual example. And I've seen that mm-hmm. and I've seen it sort of backfire. And that's oh. what I think that's missing. Like you got to be vulnerable first, like CEOs, C-suite, you got to stand up and be vulnerable because if you're vulnerable, that's a clear signal of strength to everybody that it's okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so true. So back to Sandhurst and the motto serve to lead in offices eat last. Um, this idea of you wouldn't expect anything from anybody who works for you that you wouldn't do yourself, you know, rolling your mm. sleeves up and getting your hands dirty. But but I think of uh, back to this psychologically and physiologically safe environment where um, uh, in uh, Margaret Heffernan did some work on um, willful blindness where people know things are going on, but they, mm-hmm. you know, they don't talk about it or they hide it or whatever it goes on. And, and she did talk about some good examples like some of the NHS uh, hospitals where they they literally encouraged and had awards for people who admitted of mistakes that had gone on. And they celebrated Mm -hmm. the fact that they were able to talk about this and there was no repercussions. People were just uh, almost like a moratorium on mistakes that people had made. Because, of course, if there's fear and there's huge repercussions for people and they come crashing down on them, they hide it all. And like my sergeant major, who was very good in the army, he said, sir, look, tell me early. He said, if you keep quiet about it for six months, it's a bit like a cut. If you keep quiet about a cut for ages and you're in the jungle with me, as we were at that time in Borneo, and uh, it was all sweaty and hot and and stuff tends to go quite putrid if you're not careful. And he said, if you kept quiet about it, six months later, this will be gangrenous. And all I can do 
is actually amputate your limb. I mean, it's that cut off the soggy end, as he called it grimly. <laughs> he said, however, if you tell me early, together we can solve it and I can mm. put mm. some some antiseptic on it. We can plaster it up and get it healed. But if it's too late, you, there's, it goes really badly wrong, as we saw with uh, in your part of the world with bearings bank yeah. and the guy who lost a few uh, of those lost the billions which brought the bank down because he kept trying to hide the problem and, and and double up on betting long on what it went on and it got worse and worse and worse so i think uh, taking away that culture of fear retribution uh, mm. humiliation ritual humiliation of people and as you say that the leader talking about it first is really good taking your theme of uh techniques for innovation what what have mm. you seen uh collective techniques so people innovate and think well yeah there's a lot of talk now and a lot of good work gone into this idea of customer storytelling and I really am fascinated by this area because we're both storytellers by trade. This idea that you can tell the story of the customer and that really helps us understand the pain, the leaning into that problem, if you like, because that's what it's about. You know, the problem has always been a lack of innovation is, is at some point the company grows and the focus of the company shifts away. You know, when you've got a small company starting out, you, you know the problem, you've lived it, you, you've spoken to the customers, you sold to them, you were one of them at one point. But as you grow, you hire people, business expands, they come more, a little bit more, dis, you know, disjointed from the market, if you like, a little bit more distanced. And so they become more passionate about the product than they do about the problem. And that's the key, because when that happens, things start to fail. But really what this movement towards customer journeys, if you like, and telling the story of the customer, customer experiences, like a big thing now, CX as it's called, right, mm -hmm. is about who is this person? And, you know, at the very basic level, we're both podcasters. And I remember like one working with a radio DJ once, a sort of old grizzled radio DJ, had been in it far too long, but he was really good. At it. And he said, um, you know, when I do my radio show, I never talk to the audience. I never talk to you guys like some of these YouTubers do, right? I talk to you. And he, he cut out a photo of this woman that sent him, a, some audience member sent him, a listener sent him this photo. He cut it out and stuck it on his microphone. So every time he goes mm -hmm. live on air, it's there. He speaks to her. Mm -hmm. And that's what customer storytelling is it's like knowing exactly who that person is what keeps her up at night what her pain points are what her frustrations what her fears are because if you know all of that innovation is really just an expression of that right okay how can i fix this problem for you you don't have to go oh how do i put a dent in the universe it's more like how can i fix one problem okay fix another problem fix another problem fix another problem right that's innovation it's constantly you know solving problems for that customer and Core to that then is storytelling, mm. is allowing those people into your life to tell their stories and being vulnerable to that, listening mm. to what these customers have to say. And I think that is core to innovation. It's not guys in lab coats or, you know, innovation managers. We don't have innovation managers anymore, right? Mm. That, that era's gone. Yeah, I, I so love what you said there. And two, two thoughts come. One, one of the idea, the CX and you, 
Uh, I was trained recently on uh, uh, become a world class certified speakers coach, and and it's a mm. uh, uh, it was a quite tough course, but I'm really pleased I've done it. But in that and the storytelling part, it was all about you talking to you, Graham. When I, I'm speaking, not not you guys or all that there. And the test is the corridor test. If you're walking past someone and say, "How are you all today?" and you're, there's one other person in the corridor with them, they're going. Excuse me, you're like, what, what, who are you talking to? <laughs> oh, I'm talking to you. Oh, yeah, how are you today? So, so this idea of, of making it about one person, so right. And they talk about your Joe, J-O or J-O-E, your male or female. Who is your ideal person that you're mm. speaking to, a particular person? And what is all their, the information about them? How old are they? Where they come from? You know, what's that kind of perfect person for you? So I think of that about getting across onto their island i, I did mm. uh, as you know i'm doing the hoffman process in uh, shortly uh, uh, but i did with lee we went on a making relationships work um a, a really good course by i'll give a shout out for matthew pruin and his wife uh, emma uh, and uh, I, we were there with uh, seven other couples really good weekend course in islington he's got a place in france as well but it's this idea of you're on your island in a relationship and the other person's on their island. And how do mm. you actually go across onto their island and see it from their point of view? And that helps you innovate and that helps you understand the other, the, the, mm. the other person. And of course, as we talk about 3P uh, politics, popularization, polarization and post-truth. And that's the antithesis of innovation because you're not interested in mm. the other. They're just wrong over there. They're other people. And, and, and you make it the opposite to diversity, equality, and inclusion as well. And, and finally, before passing back over to you, any more thoughts on innovation before we take the next question is Ricardo Semler was a great influence on me in my days in the army. He wrote a book, which is still very pertinent, short, easy read called Maverick by Ricardo Semler. Uh, hmm. R-I-C-A-R-D-O-S-E-M-L-E-R. Uh, Ricardo's in Brazil. Um, pa Palo, uh, no, I was going to say Palo Alto, that's in America. Um, but anyway, uh, one of the uh, Brazilian uh, cities, um, it'll come to me in a minute. Um, Sao Paulo. Sao, Sao Paulo, thank you. Um, I knew you'd know with your all your global travel. You've got like <laughs> a, map, a map in your mind of where everything is growing. Um but, but he had this wonderful way, a bit like uh, Julian Richer, of, of getting people to think for themselves and mm. to, to come up with ideas and, and he'd back them and he'd encourage them. And if it didn't work, but their intention was good and noble, that's fine. What have we learned from it? And it's this um, uh, on the, the University of Michigan, I think it was, talks about teachable moments. Yeah, so, yeah. so when it hasn't worked, what have you learned? Teachable moment. What, what are you going to do differently? Yeah. What, what do you think, Graham? Absolutely. It, it's just reframing failure, isn't it? Because mm. life is just failure, which sounds very morose, but it is. Mm. But they're all teachable moments and you get better out of it, right? You can't progress without the failure. Mm. I know. That, that's a lovely way of putting it, reframing failure. Well, look. Our third area that we're going to have a, a thought about was how do you stop people working in silos mm. and being more collective and collaborative? Because it's it's like I, I no longer have my ring, Graham. I was talking to you about this before. Yeah, just to, I'm surprised. Just to, share, just to share with the audience, you know how much of a 
It's not uh, a wedding ring, by the way. It's, no, no. it's, it's aura <laughs> right. ring. It was an aura <laughs> ring. I have my wedding ring and I have my signet ring. Uh, quickly add, and I'm deeply, deeply in love with my wife, Lee, and very happy there. But this was, uh, I, I've been uh, highly experimenting, as you know, with doing the sleep study mm. and things like that. And uh, you were interested in the fact that I was using a lot of wearable technology. In preparation for the bigger Hoffman course, I have to let go of my phone when I get there. So I can't be in, in comms with anybody for about seven days. Um, and I have to take off my Apple Watch, of course, because that's more technology. So I've now got a normal standard uh, analog watch with with hands that go around and a day date. Lovely. It's lovely. It's a joy. And actually, I found I've really detoxed and... Mm. Um, got away from this idea of checking my apple uh, my my apple watch on my uh, or my uh, phone at my bedside during the night or listening to things uh, and and now I, I can be more present and i think this is the thing about um uh, stopping people working in silos is is when you are able to converse and be more present and and I was thinking about the ring in Gollum, mm. Lord of the Rings. He talked about my precious, <clears throat> my precious ring, my team. And they and people like this, my team, the rest of you can go and hang. And I did this as a managing director. I remember I was ashamed about looking back. Oh, God. There were six MDs working to a CEO. And the CFO would say, well done, Graham. Last week you were a hero and you made lots of money uh, last month. Uh, and but Jonathan, you were a zero. You didn't do make much money. But this month, Jonathan, you're a hero. You made lots more money. But Graham, mm. you haven't made as much as Jonathan. So you're not good. And of course, and then the next breath, the CEO would go, now, Graham and Jonathan and the other four, I want you to collectively work together, cross sell, help each other. And we went, uh, I don't think so. No, no, no. Yeah. This is not how we're being measured. <laughs> we're being compared to each other. It's a zero sum game. And, and I knew in some cases where people would give work, uh, not in my organization, but in a similar one with a similar culture, to a rival organization oh, so, yeah. so that their their peer in their own organization wouldn't have better numbers than them. I mean, like, Petty. what? What do you think? That's toxic culture, though, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of it is to do with how it starts. As they say, the fish rots from the head, right? Mm. Chinese saying, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it really is. Uh, and what what have you seen where it does work well? Um, where people, uh, I've got one two ideas, but I just wonder what you'd seen where people are more collective. They do share more with peers, and and they don't work just in silos. Hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? That I mean, specific brands. I'm reading at the moment this book here, um, the Starbucks Experience. Okay. Joseph McKelly, who wrote Starbucks Experience and Leading the Starbucks Way. I'm very interested in Starbucks as a brand because, you know, let's face it, it's a fast food brand, but it's done really well when it comes to PR. You know, people don't see it as another McDonald's. Um, and part of it is they treat their people really well. Mm. That That's key to it. It's, it's almost, you know, it's going back to your, um, and you know, your idea of, acting locally like deciding locally but sort of evaluating decisions centrally right mm -hmm. a lot of it so how does it work really well you, you i'm sure there are military analogies as well like they're sort of you know you see special forces like they operate as small cells don't they mm. where you have maybe three to seven guys you know or four guys right yeah mm. so and they all have their kind of roles there, there isn't 
I don't know if they have a distinct leader in that pack, but they're all capable of leadership. But that's the point. They have a mission, don't they? And they know how to act out the mission and they're able to enact it without sort of referring back to comms HQ, right? So I think that's really important that how do you create that sort of environment that's very flat hierarchy? Yeah, a really, really good point you make there. And and um, when I did airborne training to earn my wings, as they say, when you learn to to to, to jump, uh, do the parachute jump course, um, we're in four man teams. So there's a half section, which is four, full section, which is eight. In special forces, the same fours and eights. Uh, it's called the brick, the four, two, two, you know, like little square. And, mm. and each of them does have a commander. They always have a commander. There has to be, there has to be, Ultimately, one person is accountable when all the bullets are flying. Mm, mm. Um, they, they have to make a decision, take cover, whatever it is. However, if the private soldier sees enemy fire coming in, he doesn't just go, right. I'll, I'll wait till the, the officer or the corporal notices. He, he just shouts, take cover. And everybody follows his command. So um, or enemy to your left, uh, you know, 10 o'clock. And they and they know, see the tree um, half left of the tree um, to enemy. And, and, and so they give quick instructions to people and everybody will follow on that. And it's what we call airborne initiative that anybody can think well for themselves mm. and the others will all fall in behind, even the leader. And, and they'll have this after action review where everybody admits what worked well for themselves, what they did that worked well, and then what they could have done would have been even better if even better if. And so, so would the uh, commander then cover their back or vouch for them? So, for example, let's say in a four-man if one person had made a decision and it turned out badly would the commander then say you know to the ceo say you know this is right i'll take the full responsibility for this is that sort of like that's the fear part isn't it taken out of it you can make that decision i'll i will back you all the way even if i disagree with it right Uh, it's very much like in business but luckily there's better leadership more consistently that good leaders would always say if it goes well i'll give the credit to whoever did it if it goes badly, it's my fault because I'm ultimately accountable. The poor leaders go, well, not me. It was him. I had yeah. to do it. And we saw this with Sergeant Blackmore where he, uh, shocking case in uh, Iraq, where one of his t- Marine, Royal Marine team shot an injured uh, terrorist. Yeah. Uh, whereas actually they should have, they should have saved him. But who's to know at the time and what was going on and the circumstances it's hard to know, but it caused a lot of controversy. But the point is the leader, the senior person in that team is ultimately accountable. Everybody's mm. accountable in their own way. Rule of war, everybody has to take personal responsibility. But the leader must uh, fess up and, mm. and, and take it. Just like that famous story about Eisenhower, who was the supreme allied commander for the invasion of uh, Europe. Mm. And uh, he wrote two letters on the eve of D-Day. One letter, I think I might have mentioned this to you. One letter mm-hmm. was if everything had gone well, he gave all the credit to all his different generals and took none of it himself. But then he wrote a letter when it had gone badly. And he said, look, I am I take personal accountability for the disaster that has happened today. It was yeah. my responsibility. Ultimately, I made all the decisions and I apologize wholeheartedly and resign, whatever it might be. Uh, that's probably not a thing that you see many uh, politicians. Ever. I knew you were going to say, and I was waiting for Boris Johnson's name to come oh, up because well, that's exactly. You know it. You know it. Imagine if he had written that letter. What a 
different oh, turn of events it yeah, would have been. Or, 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 was... even, or even Liz Truss on her resignation <laughs> uh, speech. There was no, no personal accountability. Events, events. Any mistakes. It was all... all <laughs> events. This is all that I've done. Aren't I great? Aren't ah. I wonderful? No, no admission. And, and so... Well, that, that's why you get toxic cultures, though, Jonathan, mm-hmm. because the, at the top, they don't take ownership and they give the, it's the example, isn't it? That this is, if you want to become successful, you have to behave like me. It's going back to your psychotic friend who wanted to work in, you know, the, the investment banking community. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, I want to be like them. And that's how it works, right? So you have to give the example, like, if it goes wrong, this is what you need to behave like, right? Not the mm-hmm. other way around. And therefore... If they behave like that, then there's no excuse. Now everybody's going to behave like that. Everybody's yeah. going to hide their mistakes. Everybody's going to blame everybody else. Mm, mm. No, this is very true. And very quickly, it, you call him my psychotic friend. I quickly, for the record, say, no friend of mine. And I, oh, wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't take him on as a client. I wouldn't yeah. take him on as a client. But it, it, it's very true. Okay, let's have a look at our role models. Um, mm. And uh, how did some of the people that we know cope with diversity, equality, inclusion? Because uh, they didn't always get it right at all. Uh, what, mm. what about your guys? Uh, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, yeah. uh, Thunberg, Rosa Parks, Bill Gates, Tim Cook. What do you think? Interesting list. And we, we sort of this is the list that we drew up at the beginning mm. of leaders who are flawed. Let's put it out there, everybody. They are flawed. They're not perfect. And I think if you look at them under the microscope, you're going to find probably a lot of bad things about them which is because they're human beings. So who do we have on this list? Robert Kennedy is very interesting because they started out, they weren't very receptive to civil rights, um, but obviously some changes in his life circumstances and he became a proponent of um, black civil rights movement in in America. Um, So that's on a sort of very obvious level of diversity in business. I don't know, like Tim Cook, obviously himself from, you know, I suppose he would, be a champion of diversity. He hasn't said a lot about it, but I mean, the fact that he is, um, you know, he is a quite well-known gay CEO is itself probably everything he needs to do, isn't it? Um, to, to champion that cause. And whether he, he, he sort of encourages diversity in his teams is going to be something else. Um, I think somebody in there who's not in there that would be good is Howard Schultz because I'm reading Starbucks at the moment. And I think probably I've talked about him before. Again, he's a very flawed leader, but I do give him credit that he did start that conversation many years ago before Black Lives Matters and everything like that. He put it out there and he said, let's talk about race. You know, this this, this wasn't done by a CEO. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, diversity isn't just race, but, you know, it, it's a many, many different things. And it's the whole sort of culture of inclusion. Right. But that's leading by example. Um, and he got absolutely slayed in the press by it. And I think that's even better because it shows that, you know, a good leader is willing to do what's necessary as opposed to what's popular. You know, it's not a popularity contest. He has to put it out there. This is the conversations we need to have. It's the conversations, right? We need to have these conversations about these things to encourage diversity and to, to grow as a, a positive culture as opposed to what's going to win me votes. Mm-hmm. And that's a sign of a really good leader who's prepared to do that and put the, their reputation at risk for, for the greater good. Yeah, I, I like that. And uh, on, on my list, I had some interesting ones. I mean, obviously, Barack Obama. And I'm going to add 
very controversially, I'm going to add Rishi Sunak because um, mm. I, I, I don't know yet what he's going to be like. But but for me, it's very important with my uh, future son-in-law as an English Indian uh, by background. And, and, and it's really exciting uh, as a role model for so many people mm. that, that Britain, who um, has been slayed for, for being so, you know, class conscious and racist and things like that, has got a, a, a prime minister with, from a different background. That, that mm. The only example we saw in America was Barack Obama, who is, again, one of my, my sort of role models uh, and, and led by example. And I'm, I'm very hopeful for him. I mean, obviously, yeah. I can see the fact that he was tied up with um, a rather rotten uh, culture with Boris and with he, he was his chancellor. But I am hopeful that that it will politics will become a bit boring under him in mm. that they're just doing things right, just slowly going along. Uh, but I don't know. I'll, I'll see. Time will tell. Um, the other one, which, again, controversial is Queen Elizabeth II, the late Queen Elizabeth yep. II. Um, some people think, you know, white privilege and, you know, uh, a throwback from another thing. But actually, when you look at her age 21, when she came uh, to to become queen, you know, she was out in Kenya. She She's a great believer in the Commonwealth and different nations and people. She's met so many people from so many different backgrounds and judges people or judge people when she was alive on their personality and who they were, mm. not their race mm. or their religion. Uh, and met people from all different religions, orientations and background. But um, there the was, you know, as I'm sure Harry and Meghan in their forthcoming blockbuster book, um, uh, spare, where, you know, you, you have one for the throne and a spare one. Um, mm. When, you, when you, you try and have two children, if you're going to be, um, you know, a, a royal. Um, that's going to be quite controversial and may bring up some quite uh, negative stuff about diversity, equality and inclusion, whether it be the late um, uh, uh, Philip um, with his rather crass comments trying to be funny or, or very bad ones. Um, and then I think of Sir Ernest Shackleton with um, mm. Endeavour. Uh, of course, his crew were all white British uh, people uh, just at the start of the First World War. Um, so I don't know what his view was like about diversity, equality. But what could he have done elsewise? It wouldn't have been, I mean, what was his sort of recruiting pool? Yeah, his recruiting have... policy was the, the best people for the job. So I think yeah, he probably right. would have taken his hand to anybody if they were good and they were a good team player. They had to be a team yeah, yeah. player. Uh, it's very course... difficult though, Jonathan, isn't it, to sort of compare diversity just just as it is with like attitudes towards women's rights or you know inclusion lgbtq issues like you know from different generations isn't it it's really hard to sort of look at them through our moral standards today yeah. Yeah. so like to say that about shackleton it's like well you know it's not like he maybe was discriminatory it's just it wasn't even an issue then right because yeah. we need the reason why we need these conversations and we need legislation is because we need to remind people what's important. But if that wasn't going on, people wouldn't even be thinking about this, right? Mm. No, I, th I think that's very true. And and then from from our people to uh, inspiring organisations, uh, what what ones come to mind for you? I think you mentioned already uh, Howard Schultz early on. Starbucks, yeah, called call, call things out. Um, uh, some organisations, you know, got themselves in terrible trouble when they were trying to support diversity and equality. And then the, the role model they had, like, you know, was it Adidas, 
when they got themselves. Oh dear, yes. Too late, too late in the day did they call out someone's um, uh, anti-Semitic uh, rantings. Mm. Um, so, you know, what happens when somebody who is from a minority grouping or a different sexual orientation is then being negative about somebody else from a different diverse group? You know, my group's more diverse than your group. No, no, I'm more diverse than you. And, 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 and it, it can get a bit crazy. And I know the term that's often used is woke. I don't know what your view is on wokeism. And um... it's very difficult, isn't it? It's the whole thing's highly charged. Mm, very. You know, like you can't offer an opinion. We need to have open conversations. Um, you know, if I've got friends or I speak to people on podcast and we get onto the issue of race, and you know, I might be talking to somebody who's from, you know, a different background to me. You know, I'll ask them like, you know, so what do you like to be called? Do you, do you prefer to be called black or African-American or a person of color? You know, I think you've got to come from a position of curiosity and an open heart for this. Mm. I think that's really important. And people will understand that is to be like, you know, if you call somebody a person of color now, that's what they want to be called some people. But like go back 20 years and you call somebody a colored person. That was racist. So it's really hard to answer the question is like, the language is so loaded mm. that now it comes back to the fear part, which is like, oh, I'm scared that I can actually say something. Mm. But, mm. and that then makes people fearful and they won't address, they won't address the big issues, right? I mean, if you watch a movie like Blazing Saddles by, um, what's his name? Mel. Oh, that's oh yeah. Straight. Yeah. Mel. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so like, you know, a, a movie like that, which deliberately and also written part written by Richard Pryor, a black comedian, right? That, that they addressed these issues straight head on. You, you couldn't broadcast yeah, that's that today. Right. That's you know, right. some of the language in there, it's just oh, crazy. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the, Mel Brooks, sorry. So that's Mel the Brooks. point, isn't it? It's like, if you, if you have a climate of fear, you can't talk about the big issues and have an open, honest conversation. So, you know, we as leaders have to encourage that safe space that people can talk about it and not worry that even if you mention a word, you know, 10 years time, you're going to be canceled. Yeah. Uh, I, I think this is so good. Um, I'm just ready ask others how they'd like to be uh, spoken to or uh, treated. I, I think of uh, some years ago and it was a bit of a risky one and people now might think how crass I was. But I, I was with someone and they clearly had, uh, not sure what the term is, but their eyes weren't quite straight on. One, one eye was- Lazy uh, eye. One yeah. eye was over that. But but even the term lazy eye might sound as if yeah. we're being derogatory about them. I don't know what the right term was. There is a there but, is a medical term, yeah. There is a medical term. And, and yeah. I was looking at them and I found it quite disconcerting. I wasn't quite sure how to look at them. Did I look mm. at the right eye or the left eye? And I just thought, look, I'll just ask. I said- excuse me if this is this doesn't I don't mean to be anything other than trying to get a good connection with you but w which eye would you prefer me to look at would you point to the eye you'd prefer me to look at he said yeah would you look at this one and he said no do you know what no one's ever asked me that yeah and actually I appreciate you asking me that and it's like um I mentioned that re reclaiming no it was um, finding and keeping love was the other book I recommended before we started this session by Hendrix um Harville Hendrix PhD this idea of uh, dialogue with another, uh, the, the loved one you have in your relationship. Mm. And again, it's about diversity, and equality and inclusion of how you get on with somebody else. 
But people fail to think about, they go, oh, I'll buy a present for them. What would they like? Oh, I think they'd like this. And it's not what they want at all. And he, he joked about the fact that he bought his, his, uh, his wife some really expensive flowers. And uh, he'd spent, you know, a lot of money and he had them specially delivered and he had them delivered in such a time that he was going to arrive about 10 minutes after they'd been delivered. And he arrived and nothing was said about them. And he could see the flowers over there. Uh, and then he went, um, <laughs> did, did you like the flowers? She went, oh, yeah, thank you. And he goes, you don't seem very excited. She said, well, well, look, I, I get and this. And she said she showed around the house. There were loads of flowers. Because of the clients that she worked with, they gave her flowers oh. and she has them all taken by her daughter down to the hospice where people are dying and she gives the flowers to them. So that's not special for her. Mm. So, so he said, ah, she said, didn't ask me what I want. And this is the thing about diversity, quality, inclusion. Ask the other how they'd like to be treated. We often mm. have this Christian ethos. Treat others, treat your neighbor, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Treat your neighbor like you, mm. you want to be treated. no. Actually, that's the wrong way. Treat your neighbor as they want to be treated. Have you ever mm. asked them how mm. they'd like to be treated? How do you want to be spoken to? What's the terms you like to use? What's the correct term? How would I pronounce your name? Yeah. You know, often people go off and they mispronounce a name. A name's so important. It's, a, yeah. it's an identifier for someone. And if you don't use their name, they're quite offended. So uh, finding and keeping love was very useful in that ultimately he found out that she liked cards. So, so he went out and he bought her a card. And it was a particular type of card that he bought her, but she hadn't said what type of card and he just chose a particular card. And she goes, uh, and, and again, he went through this period where nothing was said, but he could see the card there. And he went, um, did, 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 did you like the card? And she went, yeah, it's okay, but I don't like that brand of card. And, he went, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he thought, I'll ask her. He said, what kind of cards do you like? She said, I like artwork and things from art galleries. And this particular art gallery. So then he bought her the card from the art gallery. <laughs> third time lucky. The third time lucky. And he goes, nothing was said. And he goes, oh, come on, really? really? And, and he said, did you like the card? She said, thank you. The card was nice. And he goes, nice? Doesn't sound like you're that excited. She said, well, actually, you didn't ask how I like the content to be. So well, what content do you like? She said, I, I, like, <laughs> I like a poem that you've written yourself. So after that, he wrote poems and she was so happy. She was so, she felt he really knew her. And I think this is, if I, if I take anything from all the things I've got wrong and I've got many things wrong, is when I do get it right, it's that, that you really have got onto the other person's world. You've seen it from their perspective. And what do you think, Graham? Oh, I can't disagree. It's a great story. Hard work though, but that's what it is, isn't it? It's hard it work. Is. It is. You've got to be a bit vulnerable, haven't you? You've got to come from a position of curiosity, ask questions. And I think people get it. Like some people may get triggered, but they're the wrong people. Mm. I think if you ask people, you know, like your story about the eye, we're asking somebody about, you know, race or asking somebody about the name. Such a great question. How do I pronounce your name? I think people are actually scared to, to do that now because they might think it's somehow racist. I've seen people comment on this. It's like, don't be silly. Yes. No, asking somebody how do they pronounce your name is like just real curiosity. Like, I'm really interested in you. Like, you know, where, or where does that name come from? And, and indeed people will sometimes give you a bit of a clue. Like, so let's say someone's gay 
they might uh, talk about their partner, but you don't know who their partner is. So in, in an aspect of trying to understand more about them, what does your partner do? And, and they speak about their partner as they, and you still are no better off. So, so sometimes eventually it will come out and they might talk about their husband and you mm. go, I'm really, really pleased for you or whatever it might be. Uh, but you, you, you can't make an exception that that's better or good or bad or more than or less no. than. You've just got to understand them and their life story and what shaped them. Um, it, it, as you say, it's such a minefield. You can get it so mm. badly wrong. And um, there's the, the, the one thing that I think people I need to uh, I feel is it should be challenged is sometimes people go, you, Graham, are responsible for my feelings. Mm. No, actually, you're responsible for your own feelings, but you just have to be treat people with dignity. Everybody is born with dignity. They're not born with mm. respect, respect you can earn and that kind of thing. But dignity, everybody should be born with the fundamental right to dignity. And and that that's the um, one of the books I I've reviewed on on my website, which I recommend to people. I think it's in my next series. I'll recommend it. Donna Hicks, um, dignity, uh, mm. and she talks about assaults on your dignity and the ten components of it. Books that you and I have enjoyed. I, I found it very interesting reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. And mm. again, a friend of mine who was a person of color said, "If you want to understand it from my point of view." read mm. the autobiography of Malcolm X. And I was very grateful to him. Uh, and quite a story where he began as a real sort of got into some really bad places, doing drug dealing mm. and all sorts of crime mm. and things like that. And then, of course, he served his time in prison and he was evangelical and, and very inspirational, but of course, then ultimately assassinated. Uh, what, mm. what about a book from you, Graham? What, uh, mm. on cultural... That's a good book, by the way. I haven't read that autobiography of Malcolm yeah, X but yeah, read a lot about him um, again somebody who you're not going to hear the full story from the mainstream media are you it's always going to be spun in a different way I'm reading now I, I know I'm a bit late to the game Sapiens by Yuval Harari yes love it yeah. and um, I do actually like his writing style I'm trying to think who like Daniel Kahneman they they're sort of very easy to read like you know a little bit pop psychology pop archaeology if you like uh but very well researched um the reason why i'm sharing it now is, i mean it's about human culture and and you know the origins of humanity and it really is just about culture but the whole aspect of about you know how stone age tribes were sort of limited to 150 you know they looked at roman battalions legions so 150 people 3m you know, the, the innovative company, 150 people in their departments and, you know, the Apple uh, Mac team had 150 people in it. This, this is what Dunbar, the archaeologist calls mm -hmm. the Dunbar's number, which is sort of like this limit of the human brain to have, you know, meaningful connections with people. Right. Um, and it's been sort of found in various formats, but the interesting thing is about how human culture went from 150 to thousands. And it's all about what he calls fiction, which is ultimately storytelling. You know, you think about nation states, corporate identity, consumer tribes. You know, if you can tell a story that people believe in, plant a flag that people rally around, literally, you know, a nation state, you can go from 150 people to millions. And that really is the identity contained in a culture, right? It's the story because, you know, whether it's 
you know, all the kind of micro stories we tell about what it means to be British or American, you know, the Battle of Gettysburg or, you know, mm. like the apple tree and all those kind of things, or like the Liberty Bell, you know, lemonade stands, what it means to be an American and you know, British has the same, right? You know, you have D-Day, Dunkirk and 1066 and all these kind of like stories we grew up with. That's it. There's no physical reality of culture. It's just a story that people tell, but it's extremely powerful. Mm. And it's, it's the, the nature of what it means to be a human being, homo sapiens, right? Mm. So that's been really fascinating because what it tells me is that this whole idea of storytelling and culture are what it means to be a human, because that is actually what distinguishes us from the other guys, you know, the apes, mm. the other apes, right? So, you know, culture isn't this sort of fluffy thing for leadership. It is leadership. There's nothing more than that. It's, you're the one who leads and defines the culture, and that's really 99% of what you do. Hmm. I, I really love what you shared there and found uh, Sapiens very interesting. And to add to what you say, when I was a military commander in the army, as a major commanding a company of warrior armored fighting vehicles, uh, peacekeeping in Bosnia, uh, my company was 150 strong. Uh, really? you know, yeah, uh, a, a half section is four, a section is eight, a platoon's about 30, a company's 100, uh, 150. So, wow. it, it, it over time, it's always seemed to have come down to that number. Um, I, I will uh, share one final uh book and then let you and then we'll we'll wrap up with the teaser for next month and uh end with appreciation. So, uh, the book I picked that so many, um, I, I got sort of time to think more time to think by Nancy, the promise that changed everything by Nancy Klein, uh, how to be heard by Julian Treasure, why CEOs fail by David Dotlich. Um, but the book I'd pick out is Nonviolent Communications by mm. Marshall Rosenberg. And uh, he did a lot of work. I think he's Jewish, did a lot of work in uh, the Jewish-Palestinian conflict, but in, in many areas of conflict, this idea of nonviolent communications where you are able still to talk about mm. the facts, your feelings, the consequences of what the other person said and your request of them. And uh, I, I find that very helpful in, in business and in life to use nonviolent communication. So I'd commend that nice. to people. That's what, a about, good one. what about you, Graham? There's that concept of ahimsa, isn't there? I think it's Hindu or Buddhist. Okay. Ahimsa, nonviolence. Okay, yeah. I might wonder if your readers know about it, your listeners know about it. Ahimsa is this concept of nonviolence, which is not just about not being physically violent, but violence can be many, many manifestations of how we communicate with each other. Not just, mm. you know, obvious shouting to people, but suspicion or paranoia. These are all sort of manifestations of violence. So, you know, they're just different levels of it, right? And ahimsa means acceptance. That's the cure to violence, acceptance, isn't it? Mm. So, you know, imagine in, you know, the Gaza Strip, acceptance is what's needed, isn't it? It's like you and I sit down and we break bread together, right? That could probably solve so many problems. But, you know, mm. the violence is like layers and layers of generations, isn't it? That mm. have sort of mm. perpetuated. Yeah. So rather than Hamas, we should have himsa. That would be a bit more himsa. If only... Yeah. Yeah. So my book, the last Give one is just, book. yeah, I, I've mentioned it already. Starbucks experience, just a one coffee break. Yeah. So I, I, I look forward to, um, to listening to that. And so, um, Graham, thank you for that. Um, when we next, uh, next month, when we have our session, I will be back from the Hoffman experience. Uh, 
Mm. I'm so looking forward to that. I'm sure you are, but I'm looking forward as a, again, vicariously living through your adventure. Well, I I certainly think it will stretch me, uh, may bring me to my knees, but I'll build myself back up again. Uh, Are you scared? Are you worried? I'm not scared. Um, I I just am going with a very open mind. That's probably over the seven days, about 120 different exercises I'll be doing uh, with a group of 24 complete strangers and the uh, the therapists and facilitators. So I think looking back at my childhood and particularly the carers that I had from up to the age of 13, my mother, obviously my father killed, my grandmother and and my housemaster in the boarding school I was sent away to. Um, so I think it will be very uh, educational and hopefully I'll shed some baggage um, and come back uh, a little wiser and a little lighter. Older. And yeah. a little lighter, yeah, yeah. You're, so, you're, yeah, float back, float back. So next month uh, will be emotional and social intelligence question. Oh, a good. Top, a topic which I care deeply about. Uh, Lee oh. and I did a lot of work with um, Dr. Ruvin Baron, who did the work behind the scenes for Daniel Goldman in his book Emotional Intelligence, mm. uh, oh. and an Israeli professor who fought in three Arab-Israeli wars. A very interesting guy. Um, seeing the. the the EQ aspect, and of course, on the Inspired Issue Compass, IQ uh, accounts for about 6% of people's success in business, but EQ accounts for 30% of people's success. The rest, the 64 are the other elements we're talking about. But so EQ is really, really mm. important. And and if, there's, if there was not a problem with EQ, I think I would be out of a job um, in the coaching and the work that Lee and I do with teams. So mm-hmm. we look forward to seeing you then. Let me end with uh, appreciation of you, Graham. Uh, and um, then maybe uh, if you want, you can return the appreciation. But I, I would encourage people to have a look on the website, get in touch if you'd uh, like me to work with you and your team. Uh, and and if you certainly need a good podcast agent, then Graham is your man. Um, yes. So my appreciation of you, Graham. I, I just uh, love the fact that you keep yourself fit and healthy. I think you, you, if you haven't been watching Limitless with Chris Hemsworth I <laughs> on Disney Plus, I commend it. I can imagine you swimming across Arctic um, fjords and in sub-zero temperatures and uh, going, going through heat exposure and all sorts of stuff. And at the moment, he's just done something on fasting. He went four days fasting. Um, you're looking fitter and healthier than ever. Um, but I appreciate um, the breadth of experience and cultural diversity that you have had uh, through your life and that, that you bring to us uh, all listening. Thank you. Well, thank you. So a little bit about Jonathan rounding up. A bit of backstory that um, obviously Jonathan is going away for this immersion for a few days. So he's going to go off radar. Um, so we're going to see like version two come out on the other side. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I appreciate the fact that you're sort of putting yourself out there, which is great, but a little bit of backstory before we did this recording tonight, we had a bit of a chat and, um, I was, we're chatting away about relationships and so on, and sharing a little bit about what he's learned. And then we just about to get onto the story of gadgets. And he says, Oh, I've kind of got rid of my gadgets. So, you know, he t- talked to a little bit about tonight, you know, the watch is now once was an Apple watch. Now analog old school, got rid of the aura ring, not tracking your sleep anymore. So I, I, I do appreciate this because it's, you know, it's really enjoyable. Firstly, just watching that journey 
and being part of it somehow, even vicariously and seeing you on this journey and you're constantly evolving, challenging yourself, changing. I really do enjoy all of that. And, you know, it all, as a, as a, good story told i'm kind of hanging on for the next chapter <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like find out next week what's yeah. gonna happen jonathan is out there he's putting himself out there for you the audience all you lazy people at home just listening whilst he's going out there and doing all these things so i do appreciate all of that because it is you know it's it's not for you know the 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 kicks or the likes it's really it's because something you're really passionate about and, you know, the fact that we can kind of enjoy it as observers is, is a lot of fun for us as well. So, you know, I appreciate that. Thank you, Greg. Looking Thanks. forward to next part, whatever turns up, version two of Jonathan, <laughs> the evolved version. It's going That's to be right. fascinating. That's right. Work in progress. Always work in progress. <laughs> Graham, look, thank you uh, for being on the Inspire Leadership Podcast. You're a great co-host and uh, I look forward to uh, next month. Bye for now. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, Get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.